Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Have you ever looked at clothes from hundreds of years ago? Petticoats, breeches, waistcoats, wool dresses, caps, stomachers, etc., 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 and thought, weren't they hot? In a world without air conditioning and clothes considerably more modest than our own, how did they tolerate warm weather? Well, a lot of the time, yeah, they were probably pretty hot and miserable. But as it turns out, they may not have had quite as much warm weather to deal with. People living from 1500 to 1800 lived in a time colder than our own. Some scholars call this period the Little Ice Age, a period marked by several phases of climatic disaster. Today, we're going to talk about the ways this theoretical Little Ice Age may have impacted the people who lived through it. But that's not all. The study of past climates is highly politicized. Historical climatologists argue bitterly, writing scathing critiques of each other's data and interpretations. I mean, it's really bad. I read a bunch of um, articles and some of them. I mean, it like devolves into name calling. It's really insane. Uh, Climate change deniers use historical climatology to argue that what the science community refers to as global warming is merely a natural climatic variation. While believers in global warming use stories of climatic disaster uncovered by climatologists as warnings of our impending doom. By far the most hotly debated period in historical climatology is the Little Ice Age. It's not only the underlying cause of some of history's most critical moments, the Black Death, the Thirty Years' War, the French Fronde, the English Civil War, and the French Revolution, just to name a handful. The Little Ice Age... You forgot the American Revolution. Oh, whatever. Good lord. What kind of American are you? <laughs> I'm not a very good American. Um, <laughs> the Little Ice Age is also an example of how current history can can be. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Hey guys, this is Avril. Before we launch into this excellent episode on the Little Ice Age, we wanted to give a shout out and thanks to all of you who have left us reviews and ratings on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And in particular, we want to give a shout out to the super long one that Maria at 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 left us on September 6th, 2017. It's titled Too Legit to Quit. So you have four women doing a history podcast. Did I mention that they have, they all have PhDs? In history? Well, at this point, you should abandon my review and feverishly go to iTunes or wherever and download. Back? Okay. They have great banter and are quite funny. The podcast is very informative, not just your run-of-the-mill falsehoods I learned in 1983 history class in the South. Don't get me wrong, I had dedicated teachers who cared about my education, but they missed the mark in many cases with history. And the theme music is slamming. The editing is top-notch and the transitions are as smooth as the late Al Green. It is highly intellectual. I mean, they do have PhDs and personable. If you don't listen, I can't predict what will happen to you, except (laughs) that your knowledge of history may wane. (laughs) 
love you, Maria. Thank you, Maria. We appreciate you and all of you. So if you have a chance to leave us an equally awesome review, we'll read yours on our next episode. Peace. The idea of a greenhouse gas effect was first formed in the 1890s with the work of John Tyndall, Charles Fourier, and later Guy Stewart Calendar. But there was, or is it Calendar? Calendar. 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 (laughs) Good Lord. Uh, But there was little or no data to support the hypothesis until the Cold War, when scientists from around the world formed the International Geophysical Year of 1957 to 58, or the IGY. The IGY demonstrated that without a doubt, CO2 concentration was slowly rising. Since then, climate change has been one of the hottest topics in politics, the media, the dinner table. It's all over the place. Historical climatology is a small but tumultuous field that emerged after the IGY as scientists and humanities scholars realized the climates they had come to know would have varied significantly for people in the past. Historical climatologists seek to reconstruct past climates in order to consider their role in human history. It's really fascinating. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there are three main ways that historical climatologists study past climates. The first is historical recordings of instrumental measurements. So these are the most accurate, but they're hard to find. Thermometers weren't invented until the 17th century, and even then, only a small number of global climates were being measured regularly. So this is just kind of like a man having a thermometer and <laughs> measuring the temperature every day and writing it down. And mm-hmm. we have those records. So those are rare. The second option is written records of people's weather-related experiences. So some historical people recorded the fact that their local lake had frozen over, um, that there was constantly snow, low temperatures, or that there were many sunny days without rain. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's hard to measure subjective experience, so these sources are highly problematic. Um, The most common measurement technique for historical climatologists is the use of climate proxies, which are physical records of past climates. So these include tree rings, and the study of tree rings is called dendrochronology, um, ice cores, cave deposits, lake sediment layers, and buried flora and fauna. Analysis of these physical records help historical climatologists to paint a picture of climates in times past. So what have they discovered about this purported little ice age? We know that on average, Europe in the 16th through the 18th centuries was uh, about 1.8 to 3.6 degrees cooler than our current climate. Uh, That was in Fahrenheit. That's about one or two degrees Celsius. A few degrees does not sound like a lot, but it's pretty remarkable. We are seeing the results of global warming now, and our temperatures are rising at the rate of point one degree celsius per decade and we are seeing the melting of the polar ice caps desalination of the ocean more erratic weather events so a few degrees is significant historical climatologists aren't totally sure why this period of cooling happened but they think that lots of volcanic activity and solar forcing which is a change in the ratios of sun energy that's absorbed or refracted by the earth um, they think that these may be the culprits The Little Ice Age wasn't only colder, it made European weather more variable and instigated several climatic disasters that they had to contend with. 
At the start of the Little Ice Age, Europe had enjoyed a century and a half of moderate, predictable weather patterns. The population had recovered from the Black Death, which had resulted in massive population loss the century before, and for the most part at this time, harvests were good. These are generally good things, but this upswing in population made land and space scarce, so people are getting more and more crowded, um, and this meant that they are vulnerable to the climactic disasters that followed. In the 1590s, the fun began. <laughs> uh, several cold and wet springs and summers in a row destroyed European crops. In England, the 1590s were a time of crisis. With nothing to sell or trade for money and very little food making it to the market, Englanders entered periods of famine. Inflation destroyed their economies, many became homeless, and mortality rates jumped. Vagrants and beggars, uh, vagrancy was illegal, occupied the muddy streets of London. Parliament passed a Vagabond Act in 1597 that legalized the transportation of criminals, many of them being those impoverished vagrants, to the American colonies or uh, impressment into the Navy. Fearing unrest as a result of the vagrancy problem, Elizabeth I created poor relief legislation in 1598 and 1601. Some of these statutes remained law for hundreds of years until poor law amendments in the 19th century. The Poor Relief Act of 1598 created early versions of workhouses, the ancestors to the institution you'll find in Charles Dickens' books hundreds of years later. Over 2 million hectares, that's um, about 5 million acres, of formerly cultivated land was abandoned because of the inclement weather of the 1590s. The situation was no better in the Americas, where the English established colonies in Roanoke in 1585 and Jamestown in 1607. Climatologists used tree rings to recreate the climate endured by the Roanoke colonists. They discovered that the ill-fated colony happened to settle in the area one year before the worst drought conditions in the past 800 years. The drought lasted for several years, and it's thought to have contributed to the starvation and eventual disappearance of the Roanoke colonists. So that's some luck. Yeah. That you get there, you yeah. get there right, and you think, oh, this is the land of plenty or whatever, and you get there, and it's you, you know, you're it's followed by three or four years of the worst drought in 800 years, right? Well, yeah. and also you have to think of the the starving times in Jamestown mm-hmm. when right. pretty much people were cannibalizing one right. another, right? And so. it's in the same, it's the same deal. It's slightly you know different geographical area, but it was having the same effect. Wow. Okay. So in December of 1592, there was a plague outbreak in London that killed 17,000 people in the city. God, that's a lot of people in one city. So yeah, that's about 7% of the entire city. Mm -hmm. Uh, Widespread poverty, malnutrition, and homelessness made this bout of plague particularly deadly. Uh, Fun fact, this is the time when Shakespeare's plays were being performed regularly in London, but the London theaters had to close down for a while because of the fear uh, that public gatherings would aggravate the plague epidemic. Probably a safe assumption, actually. Yeah, really. (laughs) Right? Um, So it's interesting to think about how history would have been different for vagrants transported to the Americas or impressed into the army or families who suffered famine or plague or even for the Roanoke colonists if the Little Ice Age hadn't begun precisely when it did. Exactly. And the the suffering was not limited to Western Europe. One of the worst events plagued the Ottoman Empire in the 1590s. During this time, the Ottoman Empire suffered its longest drought in 600 years. At the same time, an epidemic livestock disease also wiped out the sheep and cattle in the area. 
Most Ottoman subjects suffered from malnutrition and starvation as a result. The Ottomans were somewhat removed from the suffering of the peasantry and therefore saw no problem levying harsh taxes on them to finance their war with the Habsburg Empire. Mm. Janissary troops were dispatched to the countryside to extract or take money from the starving peasants. People were pissed. Guerrilla troops, basically angry bandits, led provincial magistrates known as Salali in armed combat against the sultan. These popular uprisings became known as the Salali Rebellion. The rebellion had the effect of depopulating the Ottoman countryside for decades as starving peasants died or took flight for safer areas. This is a good example that shows how a climatic event, even a short one, can change the trajectory of history. Sometimes that climatic event that that changes the trajectory of history doesn't even need to have happened close by. In 1600, a volcano named Mount Hyanaputina erupted in Peru. The atmospheric impact of the eruption catapulted the Little Ice Age into its worst phase. In Russia from 1601 to 1603, the winters were so extreme and the harvest so bad that it instigated what's called the Time of Troubles. The Time of Troubles was originally a political crisis following the end of the Rurik dynasty in 1598. The unsure succession to the Russian throne sparked a series of military coups, and it might have gone over the heads of the commoners altogether if it hadn't been for the mass starvation caused by the Little Ice Age's coolest period. There were numerous incidents of violence, widespread vagrancy, and eventually the taking up of arms by commoners and landowners. People were freezing to death, starving to death, or at best had lost their livelihoods to famine. The world spent much of the next few decades in what climatologists call the general crisis. In Europe, harvest failure aggravated the many brutal wars waged in England, France, the Netherlands, and Germany during this time. So this is coinciding with our podcast on the military revolution, right? Yeah. A German farmer, Hans Heberly, wrote in his diary, quote, When the grain is cut, drops of blood have been found on the stalks. Yes, even the heads themselves are full of blood, which, alas, refers to bloody war. Many people perceived rotted crops to be omens that foreshadowed the brutal wars to come. Like I just mentioned, <laughs> listen to our episode on the military revolution if you want more of this. Um, the number of wars, the high fatalities uh, at the time are astounding. As you will remember, if you've heard our military revolution episode, the great majority of war deaths at this time were caused by famine, exposure, and epidemic disease, not necessarily warfare. Right. We have a few examples of what this was like for people living through the Thirty Years' War. And this is from 1618 to 1648, so at the height of the general crisis. Um, Heberly, who Elizabeth quoted a few moments ago, kept an extensive diary during the war. Many of his entries refer to the unstable weather patterns and the famines they caused. This is from Heberly's um, diary, or more like a memoir. Quote, I have recounted above the main events of the war in this year. The dearth was so great that at Alm, grain rose to 13 florins, then up to 16, 17, or even 20 florins. That's money, right? Yes. <laughs> then no grain came into the municipal granary at all, for the bakers secretly bought it all up. Rye cost 12 florins, peas 15 florins, oat 8 florins, fat and salts cost the same, between 9 and 12 batsen per pound in metzen, and a metzen of salt came very dear, end quote. So it doesn't, you know, we don't know what that means, but he's, and it's a lot, right, and florins, but they, um, so it's a lot of money, and what happened was people started 
accusing the 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 bakers and the the millers of mm-hmm. like you know stealing the grain. But what mm-hmm. was happening is there like literally was no grain. Right. Yeah. Right. Everly goes on to describe how harvest failure drove people to desperation. Quote, there was such terrible suffering, so bad I cannot describe it. And then he goes on to describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) From this death and starvation arose an evil worse than all other evils, namely a pestilence, and many thousands of persons died of hunger, war, or plague. The hunger, you see, drove many poor folk to eat nasty and disgusting things. Indeed, all sorts of improper things, such as dogs and cats, mice and dead cattle and horse flesh. And the flesh from dead carcasses thrown away by the renderer, horse, dog, and other animals, was taken away. Indeed, people quarreled over it and thought it fine stuff. People were also glad to eat all sorts of plants from the fields, such as thistles, nettles, and other plants. Every kind of plant was favored, for hunger is a fine cook, as the proverb says. From this hunger, a great pestilence and mortality arose, killing many thousand persons. Dr. Conrad Dietrichs of Ulm wrote in his New Year's sermon for 1635 that at Ulm more than 15,000 persons died and were carried out of the city, among them 5,672 poor folk and beggars, 4,033 peasants and strangers, and 168 foundlings. Mm, Little babies. Yeah, that's orphans, y'all. On many days, 150, 160, even 170 at most were carried out. Wasn't that terrible? Yes, I believe it was the evil of all evils, for I have not only heard about it, but saw it and heard it with my own eyes and ears. End quote. And it gets worse. Three years later, Heverly describes the horrible conditions at Brysock, a fortress on the Rhine. And here's a, this is another long quote, but it's really interesting. I think. No, these quotes are awesome. Yeah. Go for quote. It. Almost all the dogs and cats in the city were eaten, and some thousand of horses, cattle, oxen, calves, and sheep were also eaten. On November 24th, a captured soldier died in the jail, and when the provost went to bury him, he found that the other prisoners had taken his body, cut it up, and eaten it. The prisoners in the jail made holes in the walls with their fingers so they could partake of it. Two dead men in the burying ground were carved up, and the entrails were extracted and eaten. Three children were eaten in one day. The soldiers promised a pie maker's son a piece of bread if he would come in the barracks. When he entered, they butchered and ate him. On December 10th, in the Fischerhalden alone, eight prominent citizens lost children, probably eaten, because nobody knew where they'd gone to. This doesn't count the strangers and beggars' children of whom nobody knew anything. In the square alone, ten deaths occurred, not counting those found in the manure piles or in the alleys. On December 12th, another soldier died in the jail, and when the provost went to bury him, the others lying about fell upon the body, ripped it with their teeth, and ate the corpse raw. Oh my and god. Co- that makes the starving times sound like a... Uh... Like a party. Yeah. Jesus. So we give you these graphic descriptions so that you can get a feel for the immense suffering caused by the cold weather. Many of these societies had very little surplus grain. European farmers grew just enough to feed their own families and to sell to townspeople to cover other life expenses. When the springs were cold and wet, their crops rotted, and this was a matter of life and death for farmers and townspeople alike. Anywhere from 3 million to 11.5 million people died during the Thirty Years' War. The great majority of these deaths can be attributed to the unrelenting cold, wet weather and harvest failures of the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age also spurred systematic witch hunts in the 1600s. European witch hunts peaked between 1600 and 1618. 
One of the most common accusations against men and women purported to be witches was that they caused inclement weather. And this is during that general crisis, basically. This new and exciting form of witchcraft strengthened the charges against supposed witches and gave villagers, who obviously weren't climatologists, um, an explanation for the harsh winters and strange weather anomalies they were witnessing. There were so many instances of bizarre weather during the Little Ice Age that people began to feel like the devil must be at work here. We have some excerpts from European chronicles that describe how villagers connected inclement weather with witchcraft. Quote, 1445, and this year was a very strong hail and wind as never seen before, and it did great damage, and so many women, which it's said to have made the hail and the wind, were burned according to law, Jesus. end quote. It's just like, you know, yeah, you bad know, weather, so we, we burned, burned some, some women. Ladies. Yeah, <laughs> damn ladies. All right, so here's another one from the period of general crisis that we mentioned earlier. Uh, So, quote, anno or year 1626, the 27th of May, all the vineyards were totally destroyed by frost. The same with the precious grain, which had already flourished. Everything froze, something which had not happened as long as one could remember, causing a big rise in price. As a result, pleading and begging began among the peasants, who questioned why the authorities continued to tolerate the witches' and sorcerers' destruction of the crops. Thus, the prince bishop punished these crimes, and the persecution began in this year. The accused did occasionally admit to interfering with the weather. In 1595, accused peasant Christoph Gostner purportedly admitted that he, quote, Push the weather back to the highest mountains where no cock crows, neither hay is mown nor ox lives, and no flower blooms, so it could do no harm. And so the storm became just a weak rain, end quote. And the most fun part of the story is that he was asked after that why, if he had the power to prevent storms, why didn't he prevent a particularly <laughs> destructive one that happened around the same time? Um, and he answered that he was way too drunk to use his magic that night. <laughs> just Dude. like really he, he couldn't okay. perform yeah he couldn't get it together yeah um the last european witch execution happened in 1782 the same time that the little ice age came to an end and we're going to include um, a chart in the blog post that shows the lowest temperature dips of the little ice age coinciding with the peak in witch trials so interesting So we want to mention that Europe was not the only part of the globe affected by the Little Ice Age. Scholars have connected many historical events with the climatic uh, anomalies of the Little Ice Age. In the 1640s, an unprecedented period of cold, wet weather caused famine in Ming, China. One third of the population died in the various disasters that ensued. This was one of the most important reasons for the end of the Ming Dynasty and the success of the Manchu Qing, who conquered the throne shortly after. The Qing were able to portray the Ming as having lost the mandate of heaven. To most Chinese commoners, this made sense. There could be no other reason why year after year of unseasonably cold weather was plaguing China. Surely the Ming had lost their divine support. In the West African Sahel, um, this is a zone of a transition between the Sahara Desert and the Sudanese savanna, so it's the sort of semi-arid place. The general crisis of the Little Ice Age wreaked havoc on the people living there. The cultures were, uh, who lived there relied on the tsetse fly to protect their crops from pastoral invasion and desert raiders. The bite of the tsetse fly was fatal to livestock, so grazing animals and raiders who were usually on horseback usually avoided the Sahel because they didn't want their, their animals to die. 
farmers were able to cultivate their crops in peace thanks to the tsetse fly. But during the Little Ice Age, drought plagued the Sahel and the tsetse flies migrated south looking for a more favorable climate. Hmm. Grazing animals and desert raiders quickly figured out that the tsetse flies were gone and that they could easily raid the crops of farmers in the Sahel. It was devastating for the region, causing famine and endless social conflict. The last phase of the Little Ice Age was particularly devastating to Asian regions. Uh, This was an incredible upsurge in El Ninos that destroyed the monsoon cycles that India and Indonesian crops relied on. Millions of Indians under Mughal rule died of starvation in the 1680s. In Indonesia, the worst monsoon failures occurred right when the Dutch East India Company seized control of the region. Some historians have argued that the Little Ice Age played an important role in the European subjugation of India and Southeast Asia. Aside from the death and destruction and suffering caused by the Little Ice Age, it's interesting to think about the cultural implications of this cold, erratic weather. Art historians have identified an upsurge in winter landscapes during the Little Ice Age. Pierre Brugel, his painting called Hunting in the Snow, it's probably probably a lot of you have seen it. It's sort of, it's an iconic image of um, the Little Ice Age in Europe. We'll put that in our show notes too, so you can see it. Um, Shakespeare's work also describes some of the weather anomalies caused by the Little Ice Age. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, the second act, Shakespeare describes warm winters, cold summers, hazy skies, and harvest failures. Writing in 1596, these strange weather patterns must have been on Shakespeare's mind. This is during that first initial um, crisis. Right. And and I guess his kind of... um writings there show us that it's not it's not just because it's called the little ice age doesn't mean that it was like always snowy it's more like weird weather yeah patterns. erratic weather yeah so yeah. he's talking about you know warm weathers and uh, warm winters right. um and I, I guess i'll just throw it in here now we're also doing in this winter series a um a, an episode about charles dickens and um one of the things about his writing were, were kind of hearkening back to these older times like a kind of i don't know nostalgia right for um his childhood sorry 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 i accidentally touched it i'm sorry i'm sorry you are the worst sarah's Sarah's the worst (laughs) just for the record all right so i'm not gonna redo that whole thing um i'm sorry no no it's fine it's funny um anyway before sarah so rudely interrupted us (laughs) and anyway and so and so in his stories uh, a lot of scholars actually argue that, you know, he was kind of hearkening back to a childhood and even the childhood of, like, his parents and grandparents. Right. How it was more snowy than it was in the middle of the 19th century. Right. Right. So even, you know, even things that we still, like, uh, associate with today were still kind of affected by this little ice age. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. All right. Uh, so wood became a much more scarce resource than it had been before. Colder days meant people needed more wood to burn as fuel to warm up their houses. Wood shortages caused exposure deaths and resource conflicts. Not to mention the wood grew slower because of the unfavorable climate. Protestant pastor Daniel Schaller wrote in the late 1500s, quote, The wood in the forest does not grow as in former times. It is a common complaint that if the world were to last much longer, it would soon eventually run short of wood and break down, end quote. And this wood shortage continued into the 18th century. 
you know, and I'm just going to point out here, that's one of the reasons that people were trying to colonize the new world because yeah. there was this right. wood shortage. They needed wood, yeah. Yeah. This is one of the reasons that burning fossil fuels became a primary source of energy at this time. And obviously now, which we know has contributed to global warming, so it's kind of ironic. I know, it's very right? strange. It's like, it's almost like they knew. They were like, let's warm this mother up. <laughs> and, um, so heating became extremely important in large lodgings, such as castles and fortresses. In centuries past, only the most inhabited rooms were heated. The extremely cold temperatures of the Little Ice Age necessitated more universal heating systems. For example, in the Prague Castle, Hradshin, um, they employed a master of heating, or like a director of heating. Yeah. Um, the master of heating was the only staff member who had keys to every room in the castle. He was very important. Um, the Little Ice Age also gave way to more complex strategizing for poor people, you know, who didn't live in fancy castles. Um, servants and lodgers were confined to upper stories where they benefited from the heat of lower stories without taking up fuel of their own. Mm -hmm. The cold weather forced architectural innovations such as glass windows and wooden floorboards rather than stone to conserve energy. Right. And I think Avril mentions that, oh, wood floors in Victorian you know, England were really cold, and they were, but they weren't as cold as stone. Yeah. So you can see this, like, slow uh, innovation happening. People were forced to dress differently for the colder climate. Hermann Weinsberg, a wealthy German man, wrote a treaty, a treaty, 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 treatise. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's, I know you get really mad. Don't You don't have to get mad. It's I funny. Know, just laugh at it. It's just funny. Oh, I'm not mad. Okay. <laughs> yes, you are. You're, I'm mad. He's like about to murder us. <laughs> I'm, <great>. I'm mad. <laughs> oh, what was it again? Treaty? What treatise. Is treatise. Good. God. It's one of those words I read, don't say. Yeah. I wrote a treatise. <laughs> wrote a treatise with a chapter dedicated to the change in dress he's noticed since his childhood. He noted that he'd seen more snow in recent years than he'd seen in his entire life combined. In the 1580s, Weinsberg created a woolen nightdress stuffed with fox fur to protect him from the freezing nights. Chillblains, frostbite, and hypothermia were dangerous possibilities for most families, especially at night. And especially for, for servants who were up in rooms without their own heating source because right. the people who were employing them were like, they're warming up up there. It's right. fine. And without their furs. <sighs> right. Um, you have to warm fur in winter? No, it doesn't make you warmer. It is amazing. Really? I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying go out and buy a fur coat or anything. But my my mother. Yeah, all the vegans one. will kill us. Like, putting it on, like I understand why. It is a lot warmer. Why? It, yeah. Um, historians have often connected 17th century clothing to religious conservatism, and this was certainly the case. We saw a theocracy in England and a surge of Calvinism on the continent. That surge of Calvinism that fueled religious pilgrimage to New England, you know, as we know, I don't know, as the uh, the pilgrims, um, the Thirty Years' War. That's a religious war. So, so there was a lot of this. There was this religious conservatism and um, strictness that was that was happening in the 17th century. Remember, the general crisis was also the time of that mythologized plight of pilgrims arriving in New England. And you can picture them now with their long black dresses and coats and heavy wool stockings and caps and heavy petticoats for women. This bizarre costume was indeed how Puritans in England and the Netherlands dressed. Compare this to the medieval tunics and stockings of centuries past. 
part of the conservative, heavy, dark, layered clothes that we find in England, the northern colonies, and in the Netherlands and Scandinavian countries at this time can certainly be tied to religious conservatism. But they were also just practical in a time when temperatures were lower and precipitation was higher than it had been for hundreds of years. Yeah. So it wasn't until the end of the Little Ice Age in the late 18th century that women discarded several heavy layers of clothing for diaphanous cotton gowns in the French style. Of course, temperature is not the only reason for this change, but such dress would not have been possible a century earlier and the general crisis when temperatures were in an all-time low. So that surge in religious conservatism can be tied to the Little Ice Age as well. Protestants and Catholics both perceived the ruined harvests and strange hail and thunderstorms they were experiencing to their own behavior. Many people theorized that God was expressing his anger at their sins, that the devil was making inroads into 17th century society, or that the end of days was near. These perceptions about society aggravated the Calvinist separatism that contributed to the English Civil War and precipitated the population of New England. So I think we heard a little before when we had one of the quotes that we read um, makes it clear that they think that they're being punished for something. Right. I mean, I see this as kind of like a chicken or the egg thing. So we have these... um... Uh, you know, climate changes or, or weird weather or whatever. And so it, it, it actually causes religious upheaval, right? Because people right. are trying to explain what's going on in their world, you know? So then, right. and then you see like the Puritans and everything and they're dressing modestly and this, right. that, and the other, but like, which is, is it chicken or the egg? Kind right. Of thing, and this know? is also the time when women were uh, most heavily prosecuted for infanticide. Mm. The the 17th century, right during this, the worst of this crisis is when women were executed most often for infanticide and concealing their pregnancies. And so that is always kind of combined. People mostly point to the religious conservatism of the 17th century and say, oh, people were just super religious and that's why that happened. Mm-hmm. But it's also part of this larger thing that's happening where people are just trying to find someone to blame Make sense of their world and also their suffering, right? There's also, there's an increase in poverty. There's an, there's, there's a decrease in the amount of food that is available, which causes cultural shifts. Right. 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 And, and and so, and so we see that played out. So it kind of depends, you know, it's, I mean, I guess this is a great way to talk about bias because if you're looking at it from a climatology bias, right, then you're seeing this history being created by ecological Right. Movements. Whereas if you're looking at it from a religious bias, then you're seeing these these cultural changes happen from a religious movement, right? Right. Um, I don't know. This is a, this it is just a, this, depends on your discipline, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. bias maybe isn't the right word, but the lens that you're using. Right. Right. Um, right. And I think something that's interesting to think about and that we've kind of touched on in both sides is whether climatic disaster is like a bad thing and, you know, obviously mm-hmm. cause lots of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um or if climatic disasters are responsible for spurring innovation. Because we also have instances where people, you know, they had to learn how to use fuel more efficiently. Right. Because they couldn't just burn whatever wood they wanted to. They were right. running out of wood and they needed, you know, there's, it, it kind of forced innovation in certain ways. Um, so that's something that climatologists, historical climatologists specifically, kind of argue about is like, sure. is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And then what happens is it bleeds over into the thoughts of global warming. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is, is this sort of man-made climate change, is this a, is this a, a bad thing and we're all doomed and we're all going to hell? Yeah. Or is it, is it going to force, force innovation to, right. or yeah, like what's going to be, which it already outcome? is, obviously. Right. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I can imagine. I, I can imagine the, the journals, these kind of, I don't know, historical climatologist journals probably get pretty heated. Yeah, right? they're just arguing with each other and being like, well, if they had actually read my paper, they would have said, <laughs> seen this. It's really intense. Um, and, and it's all over the place. So um, that's something we should kind of keep in mind is that uh, the Little Ice Age is in many ways theoretical. And some people think it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the general consensus is that it was a thing. Um, but it's it's kind of up for debate, much like climate change is today. I mean, it's, it is a thing. But sure. it's something that people are still debating and arguing about. What I love, too, I mean, in our current uh situation like right now the house just passed this bill that they're going to you know tax graduate students tuition stipends right so this this whole discussion right now about like the the ending of you know college education as we know it and then some people are arguing well just put all the money into stem yada 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 and this is one of those examples where the humanities and stem are really closely married right right these these historical climatologists are actually going out and getting core samples right they're they're using this kind of data you know to make these historical um conversations right Um, so i think it's a great way to see that all of this is connected right right? and it's important because their work their work tells us whether what we're experiencing now whether it gives context to what we're experiencing Mm -hmm. now it tells Mm -hmm. us you know whether this is just a natural variation, which is something that climate change deniers argue, and most scientists have, have proven that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that it shows how people can kind of use history to support their their own current politics. And I don't necessarily think... Or even think, complicate it. Right, exactly. And I don't think that's necessarily, uh, you know, a bad thing. Um, it's just... It can be used for evil, though. It can be used for evil. Do y'all have anything to add to this? I think this is an interesting conversation. Y'all are just... Sorry. Yeah, I was shamed. I was told not to make noise. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, thanks, Marissa. This was this was an interesting... Um... I don't know nothing about science. Yeah. No, this I was... don't know nothing about science. This was, this was um, fun. I liked this one. This was good. Yeah. No, that's... And, and, you know, and I think it connects really well with all the rest of our episodes in our winter yeah. series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and because so we'll, yeah, because it's cold and wintry. And so y'all download those other winter episodes. Yep, and uh, you can get our show notes for this episode. We'll have that um, Pieter Brugel uh, painting that I mentioned. It's something Which you might not it? think of it now. What does it look like? It's like I don't know. It's like a bun- It's like a winter scape with you know. There's like ice skating, and then there's like hunters who are hunting in the winter. Mm. You might recognize it if you. Yeah. I. It's familiar to me, but yeah. I have a minor in art history, so maybe that's why. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm fancy. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You can go and take a look at um, some of those winter scapes that we'll we'll show you at um, digpodcast.org. So. All right. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest at dig underscore history. Um, Interview us on iTunes. Now. Interview us on iTunes? Review us on iTunes. Review us on iTunes. I said interview? (laughs) Diagonally. And (laughs) interview us on iTunes. And and, rate rate and review. Rate and review. On iTunes. All right. See you later. Thanks. Killing many thousands person. Killing million. Can you kill. (laughs) Killing mill. Can he kill me? Can he kill me? Come on, man, get your ass down. Jesus. Pull them breeches up. Is that a coffee cup? It is. Yep, it's slightly moldy. Ew. Ew, bye for Rama.